Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast that dives headfirst into the proverbial deep end of the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by two members of our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. How podcast go? Oh. Don't remember. <laughs> and Cicero Holmes. Did you just call me Poppy? <laughs> maybe one of the best moments of this entire series thus yeah. far <laughs> and uh we might have the f- uh, a, a special guest in the form of our cat theo uh because he's sitting on rachel's lap and he's purring kind of loud so just as a uh just to let people know if you hear some purring it's not rachel it's not me it's not cicero it is theo well so, at least uh, it's not goose <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be dangerous. Um, so as you guys may have noticed, we're a little bit behind on the output of new debrief episodes, and that's just because scheduling has been a little crazy for us over the last several weeks. Sorry about that. Won't take up too much of your time here in the early going, but to try and make up, make it up to our listeners, we're going to be hitting it a little hard by doubling up the episodes we discuss over the next couple of recordings. So In this episode, we're going to be talking episodes 9 and 10 of season 2, Project Daedalus and the Red Angel, and then day after tomorrow from when we're recording this, which is on Monday, April the 8th, uh, we're going to reconvene with our whole panel to talk episodes 11 and 12 so that we can catch up uh, as we barrel forward to the conclusion of the second season. So, of course... We will ease into our episode discussions by talking about what everyone's been up to since the last time we all got together, which should be a fair amount since we haven't gotten together in a while. Rachel, what have you been up to for the last infinity weeks? Hey, I've been free all of the days that ever. <laughs> um, so not that much. <laughs> all right. Well. I could have done all of it by myself. If you want a Marxist reading of every single episode. <laughs> Marxist reading. Right. Oh, that, that's, that's and then cool. Captain Pike sighed. <laughs> well, what do we do? I mean, we saw we saw Captain Marvel. Yeah. We saw Shazam, which is another form of a Captain Marvel. Yes. You saw Captain Marvel Deuce. Yeah, exactly. Do you I, like those movies? Yeah, I don't understand why they're the same thing, though. Well, uh, that's, Shazam, that's, oh, man. Yeah. You're, I it's mean, a it, long story. That, that is a rabbit Captain hole. Marvel. He, he was right. Captain Marvel up until just a few. Actually, too, and Cicero, you might remember this. In Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe, which yes. was in 2008, yes. they marketed him as Shazam. As, right. But when you actually selected his character in the game, it said Captain Marvel. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. Captain so, Marvel. So I'm not really sure. I and I mean, the history between the two, yeah, it's a little bit intertwined. But um, yeah, he was Captain Marvel first, yeah. basically. But no longer, apparently. But you liked those movies? Yes, I liked both of those movies. 
Do you like? Do you have a preference? I think Shazam was really good. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, All right. and you know, a little bit different than anything I've really seen from the genre. So okay, very I, good. I was very impressed by it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, and I was too. I posted a review for uh, Shazam on my personal website by chriscloud.com. And suffice it to say, I was very happy with that movie. I like Captain Marvel too. I'll post a review for that um, probably pretty soon, but Shazam, I probably liked a little bit more. Maybe that's because of my DC bias. Maybe it's because of a couple of other things, but uh, yeah, Shazam, I I enjoyed them both, but Shazam just a little bit more. Cicero, what have you been up to the last several weeks uh well uh I was uh hanging out with uh some amazing cosplayers at the Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo. Ah, uh, C- AKA- C2E2. AKA C2E2 and uh I had a great time the following weekend. I was up in Beantown like a straight villain. Uh as if if those of you don't know, I am a New Yorker born and bred um and and bleed New York teams. So I went to Boston, um, the bane of our all, all of our existences, <laughs> with with all sorts of New York-based sports team uh, uh, paraphernalia on. I I carried three separate hats with me, um, so that each of the three days that I was there, people could see a different New York insignia um, while I was in Boston. Uh, I may or may not have gone to Fenway Park and um, let them take in photographic evidence of how much I think um, that Boston team is number one. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that was those were some of the things that I did. The other things that, uh, that I did was also see Captain Marvel and uh, the uh, hero formerly known as Captain Marvel. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, I, unlike you guys, um, I I did very much like uh, Shazam. I thought it was a great story. I really, really enjoyed um, the force apparent angle, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I enjoyed that di- the dynamic that was in that household. I thought it was really, really good. Um, no spoilers, but um, I I think I enjoyed Captain Marvel more than I enjoyed Shazam um, because I feel like the Marvel films have done each of the kind of character films have, uh, except for Iron Man and, and well, even Captain America, like Winter Soldier was definitely an, uh, a, uh, a plus plus espionage film. But I felt like, I felt like uh most of the character films from from the the Marvels, you know, the MCU, um, have all been all been some kind of genre film, and and I felt like Captain Marvel was the buddy cop film, which was something that they were missing, and it was just this great buddy cop film between Carol Danvers and uh, Nick Nick Fury, and. Uh, that was, and uh, you know, we've seen uh, Samuel L. Jackson play Nick Fury for ten years, right? But we've we know more about him from this film than we had known collectively over those ten years and the twenty one films that preceded it. Um, and uh, I I just felt like, man, this was what a great way to introduce this character 
and and do some you know a lot of people talk about the women power uh thing i thought that the way that they did it was so nuanced and subtle and not you know not in your face that it that it rang even more true than it would have been if they were like, Oh, I'm a woman and I'm going to put my hands on my hips because I'm a woman and I'm powerful. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I, I think, uh, there, they had, they had plenty of much like Shazam and much like Aquaman before. Cause I thought Aquaman was a really good game, a really good movie. Um, I thought that the, uh, they had plenty of opportunities, uh, with Captain Marvel to, uh, mess it up. Mm-hmm. Um, to to kind of go in in a wrong direction, and I think that they did um, all the things as as right as they could could have. Huh. I think that's a good perspective. Um, yeah, I, I I mean, they definitely got her power level across, which was something I was interested in, and I was always transfixed on Fury whenever he was on the screen. I mean, that was. He really got the chance, it seems like, in this one to have more fun with it, which was infectious. Yes. So so that was very good. And yeah. um, I don't know if it's essentially necessary viewing before seeing Endgame, but it's definitely nice to to see where she came from. I was hoping it would hit the 90s nostalgia a little harder, though. Yeah. So I was on a podcast uh, talking specifically about this film, thanks to you. All uh, right. Yeah. And uh, – uh, shout out to Laser Time. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. very good guys. And and, uh, and uh, they they said the same thing, but I I asked what that meant, and no one really could give me could really provide me in it with an answer. Because um, you got '90s music, you got Blockbuster, you got uh, some T-shirts from some you know some typical '90s bands. What more, like how much more 90s could it have been? I think if it had committed just a little bit more to the period by, because for all intents and purposes, the story that they told in this movie, they could have also told it in the present day. If they oh, absolutely. 100%. 100%. And I would have liked to see, I don't know, something that could have only been told in the 90s, let's mm-hmm. say. Like- I don't know the the lack of prevalence of mobile communications devices. I mean, you got like a little bit of the of the radio, but you didn't really get to see too much of the world outside of where the movie was primarily taking place while on Earth. Mm-hmm. And that would have been nice, not necessary, but right. I mean, as someone who has a fair amount of nostalgia for the '90s, right? Then I would have liked to see that. Because yeah, the '90s were great and peaceful. Yeah. So, <laughs> so as as with as with all things, it really depends on your perspective. Yes, so. yes, very true. Uh, very true. So, um, but but uh, yeah, and that's that's funny. So you know, at being being almost a, a full decade, maybe even more than a full decade older than you, um, it 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 is interesting to think about the nineties cause you know, the nineties, I mean, obviously it was alive for them and, you know, very much aware of the entirety of the decade. Um, I, it, man, there is, there's so few things. There are so few things about that time period that I feel are iconic. Mm-hmm. In the same, you know, in the same way, like if I saw s- five people like that would dress from the seventies. I immediately, 
have a, you know, a vision of what that would be in my mind. And I could place the time period just from seeing those people, the cars, the, you know, and, and how things are from the eighties, I could do the exact same thing. Um, you know, the big hair with, you know, sweatbands and neon colors and all that other stuff. I see what you mean. The nineties yeah, like was the, a little bit more transitionary style wise right. into the modern day. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and I think yeah, aesthetically and, things don't haven't changed as significantly from the nineties to today as they did, say, from the early seventies to, to the to the eighties to the nineties. Yeah, if you think yeah I, I think I think sort of time period. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, I yeah, I wonder. I you know what I bet it is because I'm sure that you guys have heard the whole thing about how the English language here and the English language in other English speaking countries would have diverged a whole lot more if there wasn't as much connectedness in society. Right. Maybe that's the same thing in, uh, in style and in mm. visual cues. Now that we're There's probably people who study this. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. We're looking so, yeah. So if, yeah. So if you, uh, if you are one of those people that study this, if you, uh, and even if you Email are, us. A, right, right. If, or tweet us. Um, I, I seriously, I, I'm, I'm very seriously curious about what people think the nineties aesthetic is. Sure. So if you have some, uh, visual aids, or, or just even uh, auditory or verbal aids for what you think the '90s aesthetic is. Please uh, tweet those answers to at Stubby Stan on Twitter <laughs> or at DSC Debrief. Absolutely, it'll get to one of us yes. if, if it's tweeted in that direction. All right, well, uh, let's move along to the reason that we're here. We're going to uh, discuss season two of. Episode 9 of Star Trek Discovery, which is called Project Daedalus. So here's going to be a, uh, a quick and dirty recap of the episode, and it misses a lot of the detail, but this is basically just to serve as a quick refresher on what happened at kind of a high level. Also necessary because it's been a while since any of us have seen this episode, frankly. So... Let me just dive into this. Starfleet Admiral Cornwell secretly joins the Starship Discovery to interrogate Spock and brings video footage depicting Spock murdering the three doctors at Starbase 5. Saru discovers that Section 31 faked the footage using holograms, and Cornwell directs Discovery to Section 31 headquarters where Starfleet's control artificial intelligence is kept. Control is behind the forgery, and has been directing Section 31 to pursue Spock. Burnham, Security Officer Nan, and Arium beam into the headquarters to find the personnel, including Section 31's leadership, dead after Control turned off life support systems inside Section 31 headquarters. Arium is tasked with restoring Control to Starfleet's intended purpose, but the virus from the future that she carries is Control itself, and instead attempts to upload the sphere's knowledge of all artificial intelligence into Control's database. Arium asks to be ejected into space before Control gains the knowledge that it wishes, and Nan does so before it is too late. Arium dies, reliving her favorite memory from before she was technologically augmented, which is with her husband on a beach after they were recently married. So, um... 
you know, again, that's a quick and dirty recap. The episode begins with probably the first truly substantive look that we've had at Arium. And it answers a lot of questions there and right there in the beginning. You know, it not only does it show us what her dynamic is with the crew, but it also shows us that, yes, she was once upon a time a regular human being who fell in love and, and got married. And she the thing that I think I found so enriching about the, that first interaction that we were shown was that it shows her actively. I guess curating her memories because she has a limited storage capacity in her new uh, technological augmentations. And so she gets rid of these mundane memories of her just like accomplishing some task. But anytime she has like a meaningful encounter with someone on the crew or someone that she cares about, she saves that memory. And it's just so, God, this episode definitely threw me for a loop. So first things first, what did you guys think of the episode overall? Cicero, take us away. So can you love every moments, you know, the, the moments of an episode and still not like the episode? I think so. Um, Because that's kind of how I feel. Okay. Um, You know, 10,000 foot view here was, you know, you said this was our first substantive look at Arium. This was our first substantive look at any crew member that is not named uh, Stamets, Saru, Burnham, or Tilly. Yeah. You know, this was the first time we had gotten any backstory in any of these crew members, uh, like, since ever, you know? Yeah, Reed and, and Owo and Detmer. Right, like, right. She's part of that circle, and she's the right. first one that we've gotten to know more. Right, um, and and that was that part was great, but they only did that to kill her. Sure, you know. So like, so here you are finally saying, "Oh, okay, now I get a sense of." who these crew members are, or at least I'm getting a sense of what this one crew member is. And as she is going through this, this, this torture um, of, of being possessed, being unique enough to be possessed and fighting against it. um, We don't get to see her triumph over that. Uh, Well, we do get to see her triumph over it, but at the cost of her life. Um, which which is unfortunate because now the only crew member that's not the the core four that I know about is dead, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, so so like uh, what a waste. Um, yeah, I'm hoping they bring Arium back, but but at at least for right now, uh, that's that's kind of where it left me. I felt like it was a little cheap. Okay, I think that's a very understandable perspective, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you, but I really think that, like, Sinequa Martin-Green's performance really anchored this episode for me, Mm -hmm. and that, like, I would have been, I would have had different feelings, except that she was just so damn good in this episode Mm -hmm. that I felt what she was feeling so acutely that I was just like, oh, no, my friend! (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I just got to know this person. I thought she was like a bullion before. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can see that as a potential possibility. Right. Yeah. So I really liked this episode. Mm-hmm. It made me really, really sad. 
Sure. Yeah. Now, I agree with the both of you. Um, I, I probably characterize this more as liking the episode overall, but the reason that I say that is because I admire how well it was able to condense what felt like years of exposition into the course of a single episode. Is it an almost mean-spirited bait-and-switch by the writing staff? It could probably be accurately described that way because it gives us so many reasons just within the course of this single episode to love this character, and then it just takes it away. That is manipulative. I, I, I agree with, with you, Cicero, in that it is, uh, it, it's a little hard to take, especially if this death does prove to be a permanent one. Um, but at the same time, I have to bow to, I guess, the brilliance of that manipulation. The, the, the fact that they were able to do it at all, I think, says a lot about the skill that this writing staff has in, cre- in not only everything that we've trumpeted over the last year and a half, how they've observed uh, the details of the, the canon of the world that they're inhabiting, but also their ability to build new characters. And I certainly hope that what we saw on display in this episode just with Arium is something that can be given. Like they've proven they can do a spotlight episode. And I'm pretty sure that the, everything that they built with Arium in this episode would still be probably just as powerful if they had not killed her. So I would very much like to see them take this approach by building up these other crew members on the bridge or even maybe someone we've never seen before but the i think the crew members on the bridge definitely deserve to get their moment in the sun but uh yeah so i agree with both of you but i probably lean a little bit more towards rachel in the fact that i just i just admire the the way that they were able to write it uh, to be fair um you know like i said i did love those moments and i did connect with with burnham uh and you know and i did feel the emotional weight of of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I was ultimately, I was angry at them. Um, or, you know, I, I, I left, f- uh, I left feeling manipulated, um, uh, simply because they did all of this work. They, um, they, they made me want to feel so simply because they knew that this is what ultimately what they were going to do was take that person from you mm-hmm. and you wanted to, and they wanted you to feel the emotional weight of that. But like, I would have still felt the emotional weight of, of those moments of, of this loss had I known more about the character pr- prior to this. Sure. So like, and, and that was, you know, and that was the problem that I had was like in 40 minutes, you, you made me care deeply about someone that I've seen and known but not known. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you rip that person away from me. Yeah. Um, and I, I so, think that's yeah. a very fair critique to have. Honestly. Um, now, so a question that I, and just only based on what you just said, Chris, mm-hmm. question I have for the both of you is, do you think that the writers are trying to do uh, uh, two things with this season? Um, so I feel like last season they wanted to, uh, Establish the show as as Star Trek, but something different mm-hmm. um, in that in the universe. And then I think this season uh, they've spent a lot of time showing people that we we are Trek 
as you classically know it by creating these uh, proceduralized episodes throughout the course with an overall, you know, with an overarching theme uh, to the story. But do you think that within that, they're also playing with their, like, trying their hands at different classic uh, Star Trek tropes? In episodes where they're like, oh, okay, this is going to be our time travel episode, and this is going to be our first contact episode, and we need a, you know, we need a clip episode, and we need a, uh, you know, a character arc story uh, episode, mm-hmm. and we need all of these things, and they kind of were, were uh, picking, from, picking from the trope jar when they were writing these episodes or coming with, you know, coming up with the themes for the episodes. Do you think that's, that's possible? Chris, well, you know, I, uh, Rachel. Yeah, go ahead. I hope they don't do a clip show episode. <laughs> because we don't need any well, more of those. Well, I mean, they, they kind of, they kind of did when they took us back to Talos four, at least in the beginning of, of the episode a, with the previous. Right. I think the closest that Discovery's gotten to a clip show was magic to make the sanest man go mad just because yes, it yeah. stayed within, you know, like a specific time frame. But well, yeah. Um with regards to your question, Cicero, um I I don't I can't see their process happening. Sure. Like I like I don't it's it's not obvious to me what their writing process is, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing because usually if it's obvious what their process is, then it kind of takes me out of it. Um, so I don't know if they're including these tropes sort of like they have something they have to get done or whether they are, you know, coming in saying, I want to write an episode that does this and then sort of massaging it into the overarching narrative mm-hmm. in that way. Um, whatever it is, I think it's working. So keep it up. <laughs> I can definitely see your point. I mean, um, they clearly have an intent to more firmly establish the show as Star Trek. You know, I mean it kind of it's the same kind of trajectory that the first couple of seasons of Enterprise ran, right? I mean cuz right. Enterprise season 1 definitely tried to be like it wanted to to have its foot in in the Star Trek universe, but it also weirdly tried to separate itself from yes. from Star Trek and that time period allowed it to do that much more effectively. But Discovery it feels like it more clearly wants to be a part of the larger universe, especially this season. And I, I, I probably, maybe they are kind of going into some of these more typical Trek tropes, but it does kind of establish more credibility in the franchise for, particularly for the uninitiated. I mean, we don't need to be sold on it, obviously none of us do, but, um, I think it does help to illustrate to people uh, that are maybe coming aboard for the first time that, you know, we, we can be among the best of Star Trek, whether or not this episode proves that as effectively, I don't know just because there aren't in, in the wider scheme of Star Trek episodes, there aren't a whole lot like this. The closest one I can think of, 
oh, what was it called? The one with Cedo, Cedo Jaxa in it was Lower Decks. It was Lower Decks. Yeah, Lower Decks. Right, right. Lower Decks did a really good job of introducing characters that we had never seen before, except for the main character of that episode, who we, who we had seen once before, in an appearance where she didn't really talk all that much. And then they ended up killing her at the end of that episode too, or at least as far as we know. Um, so, I mean, is this kind of like that? Yeah, but I definitely cut to the quick a bit more with Arium, I would think. If you're going to compare the journeys of Arium and Cedo Jaxa, Arium is probably more emotionally heavy. As far as which of those episodes is better, I couldn't begin to tell you because I love Lower Decks to death. So... Yeah, I mean, I think you got something there, though. Overall, I do. But uh, does that answer your question? It does. Uh, 100%, of course. Okay, good, good. Just checking. Well, let's go through and talk about the major character arcs that I got forwarded here, or at least that I was able to identify in the hour that I had to write this outline. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think one of the key relationships that got developed here was the one between Captain Pike and Admiral Cornwell, because that – I don't think we'd ever seen them meet before this episode. Pike is obviously a guy who has a lot of respect for the chain of command. And he seemed to express a lot of disappointment at the Admiral for never calling the enterprise back to the core of the Federation during the war. But then there was that moment they shared on the bridge when Pike verbalizes that to her and Cornwell told him pretty much right to his face that she didn't call him back because she wanted the best of Starfleet to survive if the Federation lost the war. And that meant Pike, and that meant the crew of the Enterprise. And all Pike could really do was breathlessly thank her for placing that kind of trust in him. And that kind of threw me for a bit of a loop. But what did you guys think of it, Rachel, Pike, and, and Cornwell, and uh, and her rationale for keeping the Enterprise away? Oh, no, it made me uncomfortable. <laughs> Why? It was just, it was weird. I, I just like, I was like, I felt like Pike was uncomfortable, so like I was uncomfortable. Very clearly, and I so. Was like this is awkward. Like this is a weird conversation to have with your boss. Why are you know. pushing me away? Because I love you. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I, I blocked this out because it was like, ugh. oh, really? Because it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't even remember it. Um, yeah. Um, that's. I I thought it was interesting that he was sort of kept away. I thought that was kind of an interesting part of his character. Cause it seemed to me could be to, to me to be why he was um, always so quick to jump on dangerous situations to protect other people. Cause he had something, some guilt about being like he had something to prove. Yeah. Like he had guilt about being away from the, uh, the Federation during this, um, this war, like he could have done more. Um, I don't know how that is really playing out having seen more episodes now, but that was something I had assumed. Um, so I don't know, just having them address it like text, like within the text of the episode was strange to me. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I didn't need it explained. It's an interesting (laughs) kind. I mean, it is kind of a retcon because... You know, the Enterprise, even though we've only actually seen the Enterprise show up uh, a couple of times, its presence looms large over this season, I think. At least it feels that way to me. So having that verbalized kind of legitimizes why we never 
saw hide nor hair of the Enterprise except for one mention while Burnham and Tilly were jogging in the corridors, I think. Yeah. But, uh, but Cicero, what did you think about this? Well, I think I think uh, what Rachel's saying is is right is spot on. I think uh, Pike felt uncomfortable by Cornwell's admission there um, because he does have a lot of survivor's guilt uh, with regards to uh, them not being there. But he's also humbled by the fact that she, what she said was, "We didn't want you there, even though you could have helped in the fight." And I know that you wanted to be in the fight because you lost a lot of great comrades. But if we were lost, there is no better uh, symbol of what the Federation is than the Enterprise and her crew Mm -hmm. led by you. So I think all of that, the weight of all of that was said, was communicated in we wanted our best and brightest available. Uh, if the worst happened, yeah. um, and and he's, I think he was both humbled by that, and and it only added to fuel his guilt. Um, but he understands, and you know, as as the the series goes on, we we understand how much he understands the the weight of command, and and uh, how seriously and how faithfully. He uh, respects his oath of service uh, to the Federation. Yeah, excellent. Very well said. Totally agree. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that just gives even greater service to the moment itself. So well said. Well, uh, another relationship that got quite a bit of play in this episode was the one between Burnham and Spock. Uh I mean, they, they did quite a bit to illustrate that their contempt for each other is alive and well at this point in the season, particularly early on when they face off with each other over over a uh, tridimensional chessboard. Some of Spock's latent feelings about his father come out, and he even has an emotional outburst calling his failure to be human and Vulcan liberating. But they end up reaching more of an understanding by the time this episode finished up. So what did you guys make of the evolution of their relationship here? Because this is really when it started to turn a corner from more outright antagonism to something that's a little bit more uh, cordial, I guess. And I mean, probably not totally outright loving, but it definitely gets to that direction where you see kind of a mutual respect begin to develop. Do you think that the detente out of active conflict here was earned or uh, did it screech to a halt a little too fast? Cicero, what do you think? It was if I mean, it felt like a sibling rivalry. Um, And, you know, those sibling rivalries um, classically, and I can't really you could speak to those things a lot better than I can, because uh, my nearest sibling is uh, is 11 years younger than me. Ah. um, But I but I did have a cousin who was a couple of months younger than me. And and we we grew up like like brothers, like siblings. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that rivalry is is something that is always contentious. But it's still out of love. Like you, you may be envious of that person. That person may be envious of you. Um, you, you guys may have fundamental uh, disagreements, you know, or fundamentally different view viewpoints on the on the same uh, thing. Um, but but like 
you still want to better the other. And, uh, and there's, you know, and there was a lot of between Spock and, and Burnham, there's a lot of unresolved, uh, uh, information that needed to be, um, to needed to be disseminated. So I think, I think it, it works well, but I think, you know, ultimately that it, when it ended, it ended naturally, at least to me, because they still, they deeply, deeply care for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very true. Rachel, how does this, uh, the development between them strike you? Yeah, it didn't strike me as being unearned or mm-hmm. not genuine in any way. Like, it all seemed right to me. Then again, I'm an only child, so maybe I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it seemed good to me. And I really like how they've become, over the course of these last few episodes, like uh, good buddies again, or I mean, it raises a lot of questions, though. Yes, <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. It's yes. Not over yet. Yeah, something, something bad's gonna happen, probably. Yeah, maybe between them. I mean, but, that that is a fair point. So Spock never talked to. I don't like he didn't talk about his personal life that much, except when he had the pawn far issue. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> conceivably, what was it, twenty two sixty seven? He didn't even tell them that Sarek was his father yeah, that, like, that's what i was gonna say 10 years after this yeah. his closest friend apparently anyway and or closest friends in the form of captain kirk and dr mccoy had no idea that sarah and amanda were his parents and then years after that they didn't know anything about a half brother that he had had so uh, apparently we still don't know anything right. <laughs> but yeah true I mean, part of me now questions, well, why the hell didn't Kirk know that Sarek was his dad? Like, he didn't bother to to see that. I would think that the fact that he's the son of a prominent diplomat, but it's TOS. I mean, you have to give TOS a little bit of leeway uh, because it was where everything began. Um, But still, I thought that there, as someone who has siblings in relatively close proximity, at least age-wise, I mean. This seemed pretty genuine just because I, I mean, as recently as just a few years ago, I would get into the, these knockdown drag out arguments with my brother. And then, you know, you just go a day and all of a sudden things are reset back to position one, you know, where he's my brother and we're always gonna, gonna try and look past that. I mean, that's just the nature of familial conflict. It it kind of resolves itself in a way that, I mean, it lasts longer when you actually talk it out before the next inevitable confrontation comes, um, but it can just stop, at least temporarily. So yeah, this felt truthful to me, but as I alluded to before, yeah, it, it still brings up a whole hell of a lot of questions concerning uh, what their relationship looks like. And honestly, well, Cicero, have you finished RDR2 yet? Um no, I have not. But I but I know what happens. You do? Yeah, yeah, I know what happens cuz it's it's, you know, Perhaps it's too late. The listeners don't know what happens. Right. Yes. Christopher. <sighs> <laughs> Look, it has been 6 months since that game came out. All right. Yeah. So skip Chris. skip a minute or two ahead. If you don't want to know what happens at the end of the main story of Red Dead Redemption 2, all right? Because I, 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 th- I keep thinking about this and I'm frustrated that I can't bring it up. 
But okay, so starting now. Yes. The reason that you never heard Arthur Morgan's name in Red Dead Redemption 1 is because he didn't last to the end of 2. Right. You know? Right. And so this I, I don't know if this is necessarily required, but I'd be surprised if Michael was still alive by the time Captain Kirk becomes captain of the Enterprise. It wow. just is okay. the most practical to me. It's a good point. Yeah. Maybe that is could. that's a that's a that's a great point that I've often thought about with Discovery and and um I thought about it even in the first season but especially after seeing the short trek Calypso mm-hmm. I thought about and and the fact that they've played with time so uh so readily like that is the that is the number one toy that is Woody from their uh, toy box right now <laughs> is time travel, um, and and I I wonder if this crew doesn't wind up in the future or somewhere um, out some somewhere outside of um, the the main TOS timeline. Right, something takes them off the board. Yeah, where yeah. The, their interactions just don't come into play. Right. It's possible. I mean, I uh, given Calypso, I certainly wouldn't. I mean, hell, I'm still hoping that we'll see Kraft by the end of this season. Honestly, yeah. I would love to see him in some way. I mean, the fact that they're screwing with time seems like it would lend itself to something like that. But uh, I don't know. I just I got a funny feeling that Michael is not going to be around much past discovery. Maybe, maybe she will be, but they, they definitely have some explaining to do when it comes to uh, a, a, as much as they are observing the fidelity of the larger prime timeline, something's got to happen. They're going to address it. They, I mean, if they bear hug the continuity this much by including Pike in the enterprise and Spock, then I have a hard time thinking that it's not going to be addressed. But um Let's move along a little bit. So we're starting to get, by this point, by episode nine, a much clearer picture of Section 31 AI control turning into a or maybe the primary antagonist this year. How do you guys think that control is shaping up as a major antagonist by the time we get to episode nine? Really, it's introduction as a force of evil. Rachel, what do you think? It's scary, and it just keeps getting scarier. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I like it. I think it's um, frightening. It it certainly gets more Borgish as time goes on, but there's a little bit of that Borg vibe of like, there's nothing you can do to stop me. I'm just gonna yeah populate into you know you you can kill one form of it and it yeah well other places as by well. the time I think we by the time we get to the next episode we'll have to talk about potential Borg connections because at least for me it did answer one kind of obscure question about the Borg, even if control has absolutely nothing to do with the Borg, it still answered that question for me, but yeah, I think that's a good point. Cicero, what do you think of control as a, uh, as a major enemy this season? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's scary. I mean, that's for sure. Um, it, it's funny because it, it definitely didn't come out of nowhere, but I didn't see that, I didn't see this as being the main protagonist or the main antagonist mm-hmm. for the season. Like it just 
uh, you know, who could have predicted it? Right. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I guess that's, that's all good. Right. Um, so like from that perspective, it, you know, it was just like, oh, okay, we've got a big bad. Uh, and it, you know, like I kind of enjoyed the, like, kind of like last season with Lorca where, where like these, like the, the morally ambiguous nature of Lorca made him, you know, as well as the Klingons, a good enough uh, foil to to everyone that was, you know, mostly uh, true of heart, pure of heart on on the discovery. And I like the fact that we had Section Thirty One playing that same role of this kind of morally ambiguous group, where there were people on that crew that we definitely did did like and did have affinity for mm-hmm. but then but then as a group y- you still weren't sure what their motivations were and how you should feel about them and you know and i think that's a uh that's a complex emotion that we wind up getting a lot from today's television and i really enjoy it uh so that when control came in control is evil full stop yeah um may not know why but like it, it made things, um, it made things a lot more black and white, which, um, which is again something that thematically that they did last season, uh, towards the second half of the season. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is a pattern towards the the way that they do things, and and if there is a critique that you can make, I'm not even going to call it a flaw, but if there is a critique that you can make about the way that. Uh, they assemble their seasons if they did the same thing with this season, mm-hmm. which is assemble it from from the finale backwards. Um, that maybe this is something that they may want to uh, revisit so that they don't become predictable. I think that's fair. Um, I mean, even after Lorca was revealed in his major turn, there was still, I guess, a little bit more potential for some thematic nuance it had diminished significantly but it was still there like when he was calling into question just how valuable the federation ideals are uh sure you know asking viewers to ask those questions it 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 has value Uh, oh yeah and there's there's much less capability to do that with uh an ai who is seeking absolute power by taking control of a huge quantity of information and then using it to enslave and destroy all life in the, in the universe or in the galaxy. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's a far more blunt kind of threat this year. Uh, And I mean, if nothing else though, maybe that's kind of jumping off of your point earlier, you know, where it was trying to get into more typical Trek territory Uh, Not that Trek has a long and extremely detailed lineage of really simplistic adversaries, but it does have some. And uh, maybe a simplistic adversary is something that can sort of help to, I guess, exemplify the ideals of the Federation. But there's a lot of other dressing this season beyond just control as the main uh, antagonist. Uh, I mean, we haven't, we've still got a couple of episodes to go before we get a little bit more into uh, the Klingon intrigue this season. And uh, there's, there's plenty of nuance in other places, I think. So, but I think the point is well taken. I think that that's, that is a critique that is perfectly valid. 
and uh, and it's good that you bring it up. So we already touched a little bit on Arium, but because it's the way that the episode begins and ends, let's also do the same with our discussion for this one. So, uh, you know, we've had a lot of questions about her over the course of the series, and it's one hell of a tall order to give enough exposition, but we already talked a bit about the bait and switch. I personally found this by the time we got to the end of this episode, it was emotionally debilitating. Like I, I went into this episode just ready to have a good new romp and space the final frontier. And I came away, you know, crying in the fetal position after losing Arium. Um, Cicero, you alluded to liking all of the moments with Arium. Uh, does that translate into emotional depth or power? Or do you just kind of have to look beyond it at what the writers were trying to do in emotionally manipulating you? Uh, no, 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 a hundred percent. I was, I was on the ride. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was on the ride. It, it was again. It's because this is a person. You know, there is a person at your job that you, you know, if you've been at your job for a significant period of time. And you happen to have one of those places where there are hundreds of people that work there. Um, there's a person that you know that you don't really know the name. You've been introduced to them a couple of times, but you you know you see them around. They're otherwise pleasant, um, and so therefore, when you see them, you're like, "Oh, hey, there goes what's his name? Oh, what's his name? He's what a great dude." And that's what Arium was, right? Arium was, oh, there goes what's her name? Oh, you know, she's a good dude. Mm -hmm. And like, and then I got to know who she was. So like it only, I already had feelings for her. I didn't want anything bad to happen to her. Mm -hmm. Um, It would have been some emotional weight if something bad had happened to her because she wasn't just a generic member of the crew. She was a person, um, uh, whose face was familiar. And then I got to know who she was, which made her even more, uh, you know, more memorable, more meaningful to me. And, and then they took her away and they took her away in a, in a, in a way that made sense, uh, that had weight, uh, and, and was heroic so, you know, and it was understandable that this is what had to be done. Um, so like I was, I was a hundred percent there on the ride. Uh, so it, they, they're, the writers are succeeding, um, station to station. Um, and, and this episode was the first time where I've actually had anything out outside of just onset outward, uh, you know, Un, unabashed praise for them this season. So mm-hmm. it's still a success. Sure. Yeah, I think very well said. Rachel, were you on the emotional ride? You didn't seem quite as affected as I was. Not on the outside, Chris. <laughs> um, I was devastated. I was like uncomfortably sad. Yeah. Like, I was <laughs> like, oh, I'm so sad. And I was like, oh, it's just on a TV show. Calm down. I'm like, <laughs> There are real problems in the world. Oh, I'm so sad. So do you care so. that you were manipulated so effectively? No. Okay. So it's like uh, it's like what I was talking about in Kefabe, key fa- key right? Like, K- kayfabe, I don't yeah. care that it's fake. 
<laughs> it makes me feel emotions. Right. So the the emotions are real, even if the events are not. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We were we were having a discussion about uh, professional wrestling kayfabe, which is the yes. you know the the unspoken uh, pact between performer and audience about what you're seeing is quote unquote real. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that does have some application here. Um, yeah, again, you know, I just have to, to bow to the effectiveness of the writing and the performing here, uh, just because it's astonishing to me that they were able to make me care as much as I do about Arium. I mean, not that I didn't care about her before, but now I know her. And, uh, and I'm astonished at how well I think I know her just after that one episode. But, uh, but I mean, Cicero is absolutely right too, I think, in that, that while the journey itself was palpable, uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that, um, that this exploitation is potentially over for good. And, uh, but still kudos to, to everybody who, who brought this character to life over the course of this episode in making us care. Uh, but don't do it again. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and this is, this is, I think this is going to be a theme of the next couple of shows for you guys. So just be fair, uh, fair warned, mm-hmm. uh, or forewarned or forewarned fairly. Uh, so the, um, I think, I think that, one another one of the successes, the amazing successes of this episode and the show at large, is the makeup teams. The makeup team's job on the makeups for all of these characters, um, and the actors' ability to emote mm-hmm. through the makeup. Um, yeah, in in a you know in their performances are so good. And especially with someone like Ariam, who really just emotes through her voice. Yeah. But holy hell did she do that? Exactly. Exactly. Like, and that, you know, and I've talked about Doug Jones's performances um, a million times, but, you know, as, as a spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking about the Klingon performances uh, in the next couple of episodes, but like, Man, just just really, really great, a wonderful performance. Yeah, most definitely. Very well said. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for our discussion of Project Daedalus. I'm sorry if we missed anything, uh, but we, we're we're just we're just trying to fit in as much as we can in these conversations. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, Zachy will set us straight too if if we miss anything. But uh, let's move along to Season 2, Episode 10, The Red Angel. So once again, here's a quick and dirty recap. While preparing for Arium's funeral, her system is purged of the control virus along with all other control systems around Starfleet. While doing this, Tilly discovers a bioneural scan of the Red Angel in Arium's code that matches Burnham. Leland reveals that Section 31 built the Red Angel time travel suit 20 years ago in a temporal arms race with the Klingons, and that Burnham's parents had been part of that program, with Leland's carelessness at the time leading to their deaths. They now plan to use Burnham, Michael Burnham, as bait 
for the Red Angel. So Discovery travels to Esau 4, where there's enough energy to power their trap. Burnham is left out in the planet's unbreathable atmosphere until the Red Angel appears. Leland's Section 31 ship is able to close the wormhole behind the Red Angel to stop future control from following her through, though Leland is attacked by the present control, which is still active within the ship. The Red Angel is caught in the trap and revives the momentarily dead Burnham, who recognizes the figure as her mother. Dun, dun, dun. So what did you guys think of this one overall? How do your overall opinions about this one come into play? Did you find the Red Angel revelation to be valuable in the narrative, Cicero? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the fact that uh, we we had already gotten uh, some information from the the uh, the obvious obviously duplicitous. Uh, oh man, why can't I think of his Leland, Captain Leland? Mm-hmm. Um, at that that her parents were Section Thirty One operatives. Um, so like, and they kept saying it was it was you know it was Burnham from the future. And, and, it, you know, it, it obviously it made sense because the red angel would always appear when Burnham was in trouble and, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and that Burnham, you know, Burnham obviously is the key to, to everything. Uh, and so then obviously this reveal that it's her mom really kind of changed things. And that was cool. Um, it, it wasn't, the the issue I have with this all is that Burnham has turned into the Great White Hope. Like she she has she has become the the key to everything. Um, you know, here's this person, and and again, it 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 really kind of speaks back to to the point that you were making earlier, Chris, about uh, how how Spock could, even if he doesn't talk about his family, how, uh, how history doesn't recognize the, uh, the, uh, the uniqueness, the, uh, the special nature of Michael Burnham, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the canon. And that's a problem that they're going to have to solve if they keep making Michael Burnham so special. Yeah. Right. And, And, and so like, that was the thing that I was thinking about when all of this stuff was happening. I was still engrossed in what was going on and the, and the story that they were telling and the revelations that were coming out. But that other thing was in the back of my mind, like, here's a problem that you're going to have with this character at some point once this is all done. Right. Um, if you keep, keep making her unique, um, unless they – move them out of this timeline or move them forward in time some, somewhere. Mm-hmm. No, I think that that's, that's very well said. Rich, what do you think of this one overall? I thought it was very thrilling. Yeah. I kind of saw the twist coming. You did? Kind of. Okay. I thought there was a possibility it would be her mom. And then when it was revealed to not be Sonequa Martin Green in the suit, I was very quickly either that's aged or it's her mom. Mm-hmm. And then when she goes, mom, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more feeling than that, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, like I was, uh, I was, even though I know like Michael probably can't die at this stage, I was pretty, uh, 
mm-hmm. pretty on the edge of my seat. So I think that yeah. they, they did a good job with that. Mm-hmm. With it, um, being, I like the bringing the temporal Cold War back into it. You're not the first one to make that kind of a connection. And it's probably, I mean, there's value to it. It's still a hanging thread. I don't know. Yeah, what was that about? Yeah. Like, they never, they just kind of dropped it from Enterprise. They, so. they, they should have tried to resolve it, but they just kind of threw up their hands and said, <laughs> screw it. But, oh, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I, I like this one too. Uh, the stuff on ESOF 4 was, was pretty interesting. And, um, you know, we're not done with ESOF 4 as we'll talk about it the, the next time that we all get together to record. But, um, the the twist, I I didn't see the specifics of it being her mother coming, but I was pretty. The only thing that I was pretty sure of was that it wouldn't be Michael. Um, mm. I, I thought that it would still be someone else, but I didn't even see the fact that um, there would be a familial connection coming. But uh, but overall, I think most of the value that I took out of this one actually is in some of the relationships that were more closely developed because all things considered, I think it's pretty safe to say that the momentum of the plot in this one was a little bit incremental. Like there was quite a bit of padding in this episode, but as long as the padding's good, I don't care. Uh, And I think the padding here was good. So let's talk about some of those relationships. Uh, Colbert and Stamets. They're forced to work together a bit more and the tension between them is pretty palpable, but probably the most interesting insight that we got into the development of this relationship was when Dr. Kolber visits Admiral Cornwell, who is an accredited therapist, or at least was in a past life. Kolber uh, tells Cornwell that his life before being reborn seems like a dream and Cornwell further encourages him to explore what he knows and what he doesn't about himself now. And they even talk about his feelings for, for Stamets. Is this something that I still feel now? And Colbert can't really answer that, but Cornwell does a good job of sort of characterizing that relationship by saying that love is a decision that is made every day. It's not just made once. And I thought that that was really cool. Um, but what do you guys think of the way that the, the relationship between Colbert and Stamets is sort of being recharacterized post-rebirth for Dr. Colbert? I mean, we all seem to be pretty happy with the fact that they weren't just getting right back together. But does this quasi-conflict that's developed between the two now feel genuine? Does it feel to you at this point like it's going to be resolved again with them loving each other the way that they did? Rachel? Yeah, I think that it will be resolved with them loving each other maybe in a different way than they did before. Maybe they'll have a different relationship. Hmm. Um, I think you have to look at the alternative here. And I think the alternative is he just comes back to life and then, move, you know, happily ever after with Stamets. Just how, you know, and everything is just how it was before. And I think that that's something that you used to see on tv a lot where like these horribly traumatic things would happen and then because it's you know an episodic tv show you have to sort of return to status quo by the end and so you never really got to explore the um emotional ramifications of the traumas that are actually happening by um characters going through these 
these plot arcs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that they are having that, you know, a, a plot arc have repercussions for a character and for his relationships with other people. Um, and um, I think, I but I think they're going to end up together in the end. Mm-hmm. Maybe or maybe they have other plans. I don't know, but sure. I th- I think it it would still be you know a worthwhile explanation even if they end up together and their relationship has evolved some. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it was cool that it was kind of representative of what therapy is really like in the the uh, the discussion between Colbert and Cornwell. I mean, it's been a while for me, but I have been in therapy before, and it's never just there's never a eureka moment. That's not how mental health works. You know, it's 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 incremental and a therapist is there to try and help you guide yourself to reaching a conclusion to, to, to reach a a better position in your own mind. And I think that she did that really effectively. You know, she, she didn't have all the answers and didn't pretend to, but she helped point him in the right direction. Uh, Cicero, what do you think of the way that this relationship is playing out? I I I mean it definitely feels natural to me like it does like at at no moment uh watching watching the show do I feel like did I you know did I exclaim that doesn't make any sense when it came to um the way that Stamets is dealing with with Colbert and 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 especially how Colbert is dealing with Stamets and just kind of trying to reacclimate himself to living again mm-hmm. um so uh that that definitely rang true in it and um you know i don't i i guess i guess the inner fanboy in me ultimately wants wants to ship them again <laughs> um but but uh i don't i don't know that that has to happen okay Right, like I, I, just, I think that you know maybe maybe there is a space for them to just kind of rediscover who they are as individuals again, mm-hmm. and then and then have that moment to establish a new relationship based on who they are because they are they both are now fundamentally different people. Uh, Stamets has the ability to jump in and out of space, jump a ship in and out of space all the time. And he lost the love of his life. He watched, he held his dead body in his arms. Yeah. And then, and Colbert came back from the freaking dead, you know? So like, uh, so they both have to kind of figure out what those things are. And if the new versions of them are compatible with each other and that's real. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's the the relationship between Colbert and Stamets continues to be uh, a great character dynamic in in this entire show. I mean, f- even f- before what happened to them in season one happened, it it was still a, a fascinating and fully fleshed out relationship. And even now, you're just seeing another dimension to it. And I'm I'm glad that we have these two characters. Uh, on this show it, they're they're wonderful to watch and two impeccable performers too so but oh, oh how about Giorgio's description of her relationship with Mira Stamets and Culper because Tilly's what just happened is one of the most memorable moments of this show so far I think 
Cicero, you alluded to that. Uh, were yeah. you were you rolling? Did you think that that was that was funny? I mean, all of it was great. I mean, the the fact that so so here's what's remarkable. Um, Michelle Yeoh has become Captain Giorgio so or Emperor Giorgio so completely that one I forget that in the first episode. She was the captain and was like, you know, the baby face of all baby faces, um, you know, badass baby face, uh, to to borrow a wrestling term. But like now she has embodied this, like, you know, this this again, this morally ambiguous ambiguous character so well and so completely that I just kind of forget that the actor is there and that it's Michelle yeah. Yeoh. It is so, so amazing. And then, um, and, and it was, you know, it was sexy. Like it was like, Hey, you know, leather pants, black leather pants, sexy. Um, and, and, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And the, the, uh, the, you know, Hey Poppy, (laughs) did you just call me Poppy? (laughs) Like that was, that was great. That was great. And Tilly, of course, Tilly always she always has great one liners oh, yeah. because uh, because you know Mary Weissman can she can deliver most definitely. Rachel, what did you think of that? Did you think it was funny? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, um, it was very not Starfleet of her, which <laughs> I thought was very funny. Yeah, yep, very very true. All right, well, let's go to the next relationship. So all of these are Burnham is one half of them. Because uh, I think there's a there's quite a lot to uh, to take in when it comes to that. So Burnham and Leland, they spent some serious time together, and Burnham just about killed him after learning about Leland's role in her parents' deaths. What do you think this does for us as the audience and our perception of Leland? Does this enhance his image as sort of a calculating operator, or is he just doubted as potentially more incompetent than we may have thought before? <laughs> Uh, Cicero, what do you think of the the way that that sort of conflict between Burnham and Leland played out? Um, I don't think your questions are mutually exclusive. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, Leland Leland showed uh, well. There were so many things. So he he showed uh, regret in in the fact that he was the one responsible. Mm-hmm. For you know, ultimately responsible for for what happened to them, um, he also showed that he was trying to plan things out because even though they sacrificed themselves, I guess it was still successful, mm-hmm. right? They were able to sh- show that the Red Angel uh, worked, but of course he's incompetent because his two operatives got killed and he never got the Red Angel. Right. Oh, like so yeah you're a bumbling idiot you've you've you figured out a way to you're still competent um but but you you know you you don't come through in in the clutch man you got patrick ewan disease uh shout out to patrick ewan but um but yeah and, and like and he, he kind of patrick ewan's himself all the way to the end uh as as we find out yeah later on in the episode <laughs> oh man well, Rachel, is your perception of Leland diminished at all with what what we found out or with him a getting a bit? I felt like he just wasn't a 
like a calculating, a dangerous person, I guess, after this. I feel like he kind of, you know, thinks he knows what he's doing and thinks he's playing a, a game, but mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think he knows what's going on that much. I think Giorgio's out to get him. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, she seems like she's gunning for him. Yes. Uh, which, I mean, I think one of the things that we talked about before was the potential for uh, Leland to be some kind of a character in the Section 31 show or if he was going to be bumped off. And future episodes that we will talk about in the next recording session. Oh, Theo has a lot to say. I don't think he likes Leland. I don't think he does either. Yeah, he seems like he's got a lot to to say about him. But uh, I think we talked about, uh, you know, whether he was going to be bumped off or whether he would persist into the Section 31 show. And I got to tell you, things aren't looking too good for Leland by the time we catch up with him. Um, But either way, this – what's happening in the dynamic for section 31 it definitely seems like it's going to uh to feed into Giorgio's place in her own show whenever we see it probably next year i would think but uh yeah so and burnham hates him so there's that that's working against him people that burnham don't like uh so stuff happens to him But also, you know, Burnham and Giorgio, this next relationship, because that mother-daughter dynamic, obviously that whole dynamic is going to explode in the next episode. But it's also front and center here, uh, especially considering, you know, what lies in store for us at the end. But the, the dynamic between Burnham and Giorgio brings up a lot of questions about just how to the bone evil Giorgio really is. Because... She seems to be demonstrating a genuine care and concern for Michael. Uh, By the time we get to this, and I know we're probably going to be bleeding some of this discussion into the next episode too, but um, is this dynamic shaping up in a way that that feels believable to you? I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that if Zachy were here, he'd have problem with how sympathetic Giorgio is becoming. Uh, (laughs) What do you guys think about that, Cicero? Yeah, well, I I mean, I said this, I said this last season and, um, you know, about the genetic differences between uh, humans and our next closest relative Mm -hmm. that is minuscule. And I liken that to the differences between uh, humans in the prime universe and Terrans in the, in the mirror universe. And that I think that the, the differences between us are, uh, are similarly imperceptible. And, and so because of that, it's, it's very easy. It, you know, it was easy then it's easy for me now to see matronly love uh, be realistic from the mirror version of of Giorgio um, towards Burnham because that is universal, and I also think that as a result of Giorgio being in the Prime Universe, she doesn't have to necessarily she all of her senses her senses are being dulled just a little, so that that sentimentality is um while it was always there is is safer now to um to to surface 
And, and um, so I think both of those things are at play is, is um, the fact that, that we're, we're really close cousins uh, and, and the fact that uh, I think that she doesn't have to, her, her senses are being dulled because she doesn't have to actively um, be the emperor all of, all of the time. Sure. What do you think about that, Rachel? Um, I think that Giorgio having motherly feelings for Burnham does not preclude her being evil. I think that the sort of motherly form of love is somewhat self-interested, right? Because it's you, you want to, you sort of biologically predispose to love your offspring because they are a continuation of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while even if they're not like a genetic continuation of you, you feel like, you know, you can, you're passing on something of of you through your mentorship and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a very, you know, even the most selfish people, you know, still love their children. Right. So um, at least you hope so. Yeah. It <laughs> would certainly seem so by all outward appear- appearances. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes to a fault, right? Like, you, you know, you know, the like mean ladies at the playground are like, don't touch my kid. Right? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't think that, uh, you know, the, the mere psychology uh, makes it so that you can't, feel love especially that mm-hmm. sort of love um and also what i agree with what cicero is saying is that she's in she's in the prime universe now and all of our um you know happy lovey-dovey kissy party stuff <laughs> is probably uh wearing off on her and she's becoming a nicer person mm-hmm. even in section 31 which seems like it says a lot i mean i'm inclined to agree with you guys in that you know not having to be the the uh, definitive force and authority in the the mirror universe in the Terran Empire probably has something to do with it. But also, I mean, we know at least, well, I mean, kind of now, but also in the future, we know that Section Thirty One members still ultimately believe in the ideals of the Federation. They are just sure. willing to compromise those ideals in order to uphold them paradoxically, but they still believe in them. And they uh, didn't Tyler even say previously that we do what we do. So you're, maybe it was Leland that said it. No, it was yeah. Leland. Leland said, we do yeah. what we do. So you do what you do. Um, yeah. So that you can do what you do. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, the fact that George O is effectively fighting for ideals that are by all accounts totally opposite to what she has believed her entire life up until the point of transference. Uh, Maybe they are starting to rub off on her a little bit, but still at the end of the day, we're at a point with her character where I'm pretty sure that if she had it her way, she would still be the totalitarian in any scenario that she's at. And maybe that's the thing that's lending to her choosing to try and become the totalitarian of section 31 at least. Uh, but it's a, it's still a very interesting character dynamic to explore and uh, we'll still have more to say about Giorgio the next time we get together. Um, but the last one here is Burnham and her mother. 
Um, and we talked a bit about uh, the the revelation that was at the end of this episode. But in the moment before the helmet came off, did any did either of you guys believe that she that the angel would actually be future Burnham, or were you pretty sure it was someone else? Because I, I already said I thought it was someone else. I thought it could be her mother. Right. Um, I wasn't sure. I yeah. didn't know what to expect. Did you have a, a finger on that, Paul Cicero? Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking that it was it was her mom. Um and and like when she looked down and before they did the reveal, mm-hmm. I said, you know, I said mom first. Uh-huh. So yeah, so that was like, yeah, uh that was uh, you know, I mean it was a thing. Uh, like uh I don't know if it if it really meant one thing or another for me at that at that particular moment, like you know, future Birmingham would be kind of dumb, um, and 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 like time consuming, right? To have her be around, so her mom makes more sense narratively. Yeah, I can see that. And, and cost cost wise, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always that, but um, you know, there's still even after a couple of episodes, there's still a couple of questions lingering about why she was doing the things that she was doing because, uh. Well, I mean, we'll talk about it more in depth next time, but she played dumb when it came to the, the the seven bursts that put everybody in this direction. Um, we still don't really know why she felt the need to go back in time to World War III and take those soldiers and drop them on another planet. Uh, so hopefully this is all stuff that'll be wrapped up by the time we get to the end of the season, but... Um, Definitely a lot of possibility that may not have been fully explored, presuming that we have seen the last of Burnham's mother, as we will talk about uh, next time. But uh, I think that's, gosh, guys, I think that's pretty much going to do it. Anybody have any final thoughts they want to share before we dismiss for the evening? Man, uh, still a great season. Yeah. Still a great season. And, uh, We've got two more episodes to talk about, so I can't wait to talk about them. Let's uh, let's uh, use some time crystals. Fast <laughs> forward to Wednesday. Well said, Rachel. Any final thoughts? I don't have any final thoughts. Theo, do you have any final thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was well yeah. said. Oh, he's he's a very verbose little guy. That's for sure. All right. Well, uh, looks like that's going to do it for episode number thirty-nine of discovery debrief. God, we're almost at 40. That's wild. It's time's going to be 40. Jeez. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like, and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it. If you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook or Google podcasts, wherever you listen, it only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. Speaking of which, Debrief is engaged into a partnership with the developers of officially licensed browser-based game Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion. Send us proof of your review of the show on social media or via email, and we'll send you a key code that's worth approximately $60 of in-game items. It's that simple. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles, and feel free to send us questions through Twitter our Facebook-like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. 
Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us as we convene next time to discuss the next two episodes of our subject series with our full panel as we prepare for the end of Season 2. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. Bye.